About half of the world's adults, or some 2.5 billion people, still don't have a bank account. So the topic uh, of this panel is financial inclusion. This fintech revolution will have winners and losers. Where today we are participating in conversation at the MasterCard Foundation Symposium on Financial Inclusion. And under the spotlight today is financial inclusion. Why do we care? Why should we care? Do we care? How many people care? Hi, you're here with Yolene, Sam, and Teo, and we're excited to dive into today's topic. You guessed it, financial inclusion. For about 15 years now, financial inclusion has become integrated into the development strategy of international actors and national governments in developing countries. In this episode, we will try to answer what made financial inclusion become viral and why has it become so hegemonic? We'll argue that this narrative is not hegemonic because of its innate potential to drastically improve livelihoods, but because it does not require a fundamental transformation of existing structures and it, it advances the interests of powerful new development actors. Later on, as a case study, we'll look at a specific initiative, namely the Better Than Cash Alliance. This alliance technically falls under the wings of the United Nations Capital Development Fund, but is actually driven by many other actors. But before we begin, let's talk about what financial inclusion actually is. The aim of financial inclusion is to facilitate access to wide range financial services for all people around the globe, both households and enterprises. This ranges from savings, credit, insurance to payments. The idea is that giving the poor access to financial services can lift millions of people out of poverty because they will be able to invest their assets and be empowered to become productive. I guess the key question here is, has this happened? Let's bring in an expert to have her say. I'm Julie Zolman, an independent researcher and a PhD candidate at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. I'm based in Nairobi, Kenya, and I've spent about the last 10 years studying how ordinary people manage their money, interact with financial systems, and use new technologies. Financial inclusion was definitely a movement um, full of activists and evangelists, even, I would say. And with any kind of evangelism, there are certain pieces of that movement that are then... Uh, taken as articles of faith. And probably one of the most um, damaging articles of faith was the theory of change behind financial inclusion, which seemed to be that if people were able to use uh, modern banking services and mobile money, that that would um, sort of directly lead towards a decrease in poverty. And those assumptions and that theory of change um, took a long time to be interrogated very deeply. And as a result, there was this obsession that in some ways still persists with um, this indicator of access, um, which is a metric that doesn't measure access at all. It's, um, it's not a measure of whether people have certain services available and are then able to make a choice about using them. What they actually measure is the de facto consumption of a product, of a financial uh, commodity, for lack of a better word. Right. The financial inclusion promoted by international actors is explicitly market-driven. 
These actors stress the amazing potential of a large variety of innovative financial products and services on a digital platform to really benefit the poor. And this approach to development is not new. What previous approaches from the neoliberal structural adjustment to good governance and microcredit have in common is that they are market-based in nature. Financial inclusion is an extended version of microcredit. Now, mainstream financial institutions and other commercial actors can also serve and benefit from the poor. It can't be all bad, though. Julie, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, I think we have to also recognize that this kind of evangelism led to some really powerful changes in a lot of countries. And I think in one area in particular is um, with cash transfers. The financial inclusion uh, evangelists were very involved in the modalities of making payments on massive cash transfer programs in Mexico and Brazil, also in areas like remote parts of northern Kenya, and in emergencies like the um, paying healthcare workers in the Ebola response in West Africa. Um, it's also helped make space for the little people in banking more generally in lots of, um, of Africa, which is the region that I'm most familiar with. But I do worry about the impact of a sticky narrative that doesn't get interrogated very deeply. Um, we, we have the illusion that there can be private solutions for almost every problem that's actually a public problem. This reminds me of a major funder of financial inclusion initiatives, Bill Gates. Let's hear what he has to say. Poor people do have assets, their intellect, their labor, their savings. The problem is that they don't have financial tools to capitalize on these resources. They're trapped in an inefficient cash economy that robs them of opportunities to insure themselves against risk, invest in their productivity, and ultimately to help lift them out of poverty. The vision the Alliance for Financial Inclusion laid out in the Maya Declaration is a paradigm shift in the way the poor are able to approach life, seizing control of it rather than trying to manage it. Success will require a paradigm shift in the way we conceive of the financial system, from cash-based to digital. Paradigm shifts are hard work. Bill Gates talks about financial inclusion as a major paradigm shift, but in many ways, this is just an extension of the same type of development thinking that we've all seen before in the last few decades. We've already discussed that the core philosophy of financial inclusion market-led development is no different to micro-credit regimes in the past. I would argue that this is one key reason that this idea is so hegemonic. By maintaining a given paradigm, there is no need to rip up consensus and start again. Actors already know that they have strong support. Yes, indeed. It's important to note the market-led paradigm was adjusted somewhat in the late 1990s by Amartya Sen's pioneering work emphasizing the importance of individual livelihoods. This was welcome following decades of structural adjustment that treated individuals as secondary to macroeconomic stability. However, this shift did sometimes mean that structural features were underemphasized, which I think financial inclusion initiatives can be guilty of too. I also think it leads us to thinking about low-hanging fruits constantly without necessarily tackling the systemic issues that make poverty so persistent. We think about these commercial solutions that are very rewarding to implement because they, we, can, we can manage and control nearly everything in that process, um, whereas thinking about systemic change is much harder.
This individual over structure approach has been furthered by a new emphasis on behavioral economics. Problems of overindebtedness and poor financial literacy are attributed to a lack of cognitive bandwidth caused by poverty. In some ways, that's an excellent insight. It acknowledges that those in poverty have demands on their time that many of us simply do not have. However, it places responsibility on the individual, failing to recognize the structures in which they live. And this perspective is published in the top economic journals and pushed by major international organizations. This then provides academic legitimacy for financial inclusion, further explaining its hegemony. I think it's pretty clear that existing knowledge structures privilege ideas that don't rock the boat of market-led development, so to speak. However, it's also important to remember that the drivers of the market paradigm and popular economic evidence are largely Western actors. We see this with financialization, the UN Capital Development Fund, and its Better Than Cash Alliance. It's presented as a communal goal that is ground up when it still tends to be top-down, north-south. The late Professor Tandika Kandawire has written a lot on the topic of dominant development paradigms, advocating for more policy space and knowledge space for leaders of the global south, less overwhelming power of the West to influence developmental policy of emerging economies. That's true, but it's also important to remember that many people in developing countries are excited about financial inclusion too. There are plenty of economists and policymakers in African countries who share the same normative beliefs and claim this is the key to poverty eradication as well. There are locals who buy into these ideas and also those who stand to profit from banking the unbanked, especially from commercializing consumer data. Their support helps give the idea further legitimacy. I think the other challenge with financial inclusion was that it was a very seductive idea for government bureaucrats. Um, in some ways, the, the aims of the financial inclusion movement really aligned with, with the aims of government in lots of ways. It seemed to solve some macro problems. It looks like a big uh, public success, even when it requires very little public investment to, um, to achieve. And also, I think, uh, if you look at organizations like AFI... That's the Alliance for Financial Inclusion that Bill Gates mentioned earlier. That were heavily funded by, by the Gates Foundation and are supported in large part by World Bank institutions, by CGAP. Um, you have a lot of central bankers that are drawn to this work. And I think it's not just the, the money and the, the fancy conferences, but, but also that this kind of work brings real meaning to a profession that is otherwise a bit unfulfilling. Um, they're there to sort of keep the banking banking sector afloat, keep things safe. Um, but this gives them a chance to work on something that might feel a little bit more closer to really advancing the development of their countries. And I can see when I work with, with government bureaucrats that, that that's an alluring uh, proposition. Yes. And the support of local policymakers partly explains why financial inclusion takes different forms in different countries. There's an interesting paper from Florence Daffe, who shows that central bankers in Nigeria and Kenya adopted financial inclusion initiatives in very different ways. The ambiguity of financial inclusion as a concept enables it to be seen as one idea, when in reality, it can look very different depending on the implementers and their goals. Ambiguity, of course, can be quite a good thing, as it means that local actors can adapt inclusion to be more contextually appropriate. 
That's true. Yet, at the same time, the international push for financial inclusion is largely Western and private sector driven. Let's illustrate this with a real life example, the Better Than Cash Alliance. In many parts of the world where economies are developing and populations are in the greatest areas of need, electronic payments are not migrating fast enough because you're not seeing the right blend of government, NGO, and private industry partnership. The Better Than Cash Alliance is partnership between governments, non-governmental organizations, and businesses who believe that creating an electronic financial services infrastructure for the poor can greatly improve their lives. Sounds pretty compelling, but let's talk about the context in which the alliance has arisen. Since the 2008 World Bank report, Finance for All, and the Pittsburgh Summit in 2009, financial inclusion became the leading focus for development actors. Organizations across fintech, development, and philanthropic sectors worked together to push global finance-led capitalism. Despite the global financial crisis, the private sector was upheld as the key solution to market failure. The Better Than Cash Alliance was convened by USAID and brought many of the big private actors together. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Omidyar Network, Visa, City, Ford Foundation, and MasterCard. Most people are surprised how often these seemingly separate actors operate together to push the same agenda. Two of the big partners of the Better Than Cash Alliance, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and MasterCard, are also the most generous financiers of the UN Capital Development Fund. Their reports also display the label of the UN, and they refer to themselves as a UN-based org. This is not really an accurate representation, but it certainly lends them some legitimacy. And MasterCard historically used to publicly discuss how their war on cash was about profit-seeking. But since their partnership with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Better and Cash Alliance, their discourse has now changed, focused on empowering the poor. Which is also ironic, because while cash offers anonymity, digital systems force people to use middlemen and surrender personal information and data. There are certainly some trade-offs to consider here. Of course, it would be too simplistic to see these actors as purely driven by commercial or Western interests. Many fintech proponents genuinely believe in it and want to make a meaningful difference, as Julie said. The most important thing to appreciate is that financial inclusion is no paradigm shift, rather an extension of what we've seen before. Financial inclusion has gone so viral because it does not require a fundamental transformation of existing social structures, power relations, and normative beliefs. Definitely. While the intentions of philanthropic, fintech, or development actors driving financial inclusion may genuinely be to empower the poor, they often have other incentives which should not be forgotten. Yeah, it's also about commercial interest and the possibility of extracting large amounts of profitable data from the embanked. This is important because data collection shapes the world we live in and the ways in which we understand that world. We need to investigate who is creating knowledge and who is producing data, who chooses what data is measured and how the data is presented. This is particularly problematic as the poor are increasingly seen as an opportunity for commercial profits, 
and we risk relying on data which further biases our understanding of the world. While the international push for financial inclusion may be seen as primarily driven by the West, local elites can benefit from it too. Furthermore, as Julie said, there are also African policymakers who consider financial inclusion an important tool to improve the livelihoods of the poor. And as we have discussed, the ambiguity of the concept lends some policy space to African governments. In short, while financial inclusion may provide some benefits to some people in developing countries, it alone will not eradicate poverty. The very reason financial inclusion has gone so viral is because it doesn't require a fundamental transformation of existing structures and beliefs while driving the interests of new development actors, not because of its innate potential to change the world. Mm-hmm.